Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. I'm starting a new series with Canola Council of Canada agronomy specialists. I will talk with each of them about one major canola production topic and ask them to describe a major advance, a moonshot, a great leap forward that could make management of a particular pest or crop input easier, better, and more profitable. My first guest is Chris Mancher, and the first topic is sclerotinia stem rot. Uh, my name's Chris Mancher. I'm an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada in the Eastern Manitoba Territory. Joining us is Clint Yerke. And I'm Clint Yerke. I'm the agronomy director for the Canola Council, and I'm stationed on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan in Lloydminster. Here we go. We're talking about sclerotinia stem rot. Chris, give me a quick update of the, the scope of the problem for prairies, canola growers, where does sclerotinia stem rot rank for them? Well, I think it's on the top of mind for many growers, but probably in the past couple of years, maybe not so much because we've had some very dry years, lots of drought. But if those weather conditions are good and we see great um, uh, situations for sclerotinia to thrive, it can be one of our greatest yield loss, uh, yield robbers actually for canola. And Chris, you're based in Manitoba. The disease, from my experience, tends to be worse in Manitoba. But Clint, what's the prairie-wide perspective? Are there are there areas that really don't have an issue, and areas where it it could be an issue every year? Sclerotinia is is the one disease that really thrives on moisture. So the wetter it is, the the more disease. And so typically, we we find more sclerotinia in areas that traditionally get a, a bit more moisture. So the black soil zones of the prairies typically will we'll see more uh, sclerotinia than the brown soil zones, but it's it, it all comes down to moisture. Sometimes we, we do see some really wet years in the brown soil zones and, and farmers that haven't been very experienced with sclerotinia, suddenly you find that they have uh, higher levels of, of the disease than than what uh, anyone would have would have guessed. So it's it one really has to pay attention to what's happening with the weather with this one with this disease more so than others. Chris, I mean farmers are familiar with sclerotinia stem rot, but let's just do a quick sclerotinia 101. What is the disease? Yeah, so sclerotinia stem rot is a disease that is actually fairly aggressive. And the difficult part about it is that we don't see it until it's too late. And that's because the spores that actually uh, produce sclerotinia, they go and infect on the canola petals, which act as this like nutrient dense reactor that all of a sudden is just starts infecting like crazy. And then of course those petals drop at the end of flowering. They go land onto the stems, onto the leaves. And from there, it's already too late once you start seeing that infection and you can't save that by fungicides. Uh, this pathogen goes and starts to infect within the stem, uh, can infect throughout depending on where it initially starts. And then it'll produce these little uh, sclerotia, they kind of look like very tiny raisins that reside in the stem. And those are the resting spores or the bodies that actually uh, start the cycle anew in other years when those conditions and weather is optimal for it. I like your descriptive words. I haven't heard petals described as nu nutrient-dense reactors before, but I like that one. And then uh, the tiny raisins, we often call them mouse droppings, but they're, so they're, they're raisins 
that are the size of mouse droppings. <laughs> you you bet. Yeah. Like, what is our current recommendation for management? Chris, you can start and then I'll go to Quint. Yeah, so currently we have a variety, like a scale of different ways we can assess glutinia out in the field. And um, some growers, you know, they can take a look at the forecast and say, yeah, these are great conditions for sclerotinia. I should be spraying. Uh, others, they take a more nuanced approach. You know, they may actually go into their fields and if their pants get wet, that is also a good indicator that the conditions are optimal. But uh, we really want to kind of take a look at it on a more scientific evidence-based approach. And so there are checklists out there and we have a checklist developed with the Canola Council based on some publications in the past that takes a look at a variety of factors. You know, the weather that we've had in the past couple of weeks, what the forecasted weather is going to be like in the near term, uh, what your rotation was on that field. So if you had host crops such as canola or beans or sunflowers or potatoes, uh, you may have more inoculum there that could impact your disease in the current year. Other things like if you're trying to identify the little spore producing structures in the soil called apothecia, uh, that can also impact it as well. So there's a lot of different factors that we can take a look at. Some are more difficult to tease out than others, um, but there's definitely a really strong relationship between the environment that um, we're experiencing, that pathogen in with the canola, that humidity, and the overall uh, rate of disease that you'll see later on in the season. When spotting the apothecia, I've never tried it, but they're the tiny little mushrooms. Um, and unless you're trained, uh, maybe using that as a as a factor might be more challenging than than we might think. We can say it, but it might not be as easy to do. So with the checklist, what do you think are the the key risk factors? that don't require a lot of really close scouting. Yeah, for, uh, as I said at the outset, like this this disease loves moisture. And, and so the, the the wetter the environment, the, the, the greater the risk for, for the development of, of, of the disease. Um, moisture at the beginning of the season uh, that, that brings the soil closer to saturation that's what actually uh, uh, initiates that those sclerotia, those um, raisin mouse droppings, as, as Chris described them, to uh, to actually produce those apothecia. So you you need wet soil in it to to initiate that that um, production of of the apothecia, and then and then during the flowering period when the spores are uh, showering down onto uh, flower petals and that. The, the fungus requires quite a bit of moisture to um, colonize those petals and then to uh, use those petals as, as nutrient sources to, uh, to initiate infection into leaves and into stems. And so the, the more available moisture, whether it's as uh, relative humidity or it's uh, rain showers and that that are actually physically wetting the leaves and that, the, uh, the, the, the greater the risk. And, and so some of the, the the factors that are part of the checklist that um, have an influence, um, maybe not as much as as the actual environmental conditions like crop rotation and um, and and previous crop infection uh, that that might have had uh, sclerotinia in previous years and that like these are important because they they give us an indication as to 
um, the potential for that pathogen to be present in the in the soil. But it really comes down to that those environmental conditions that initiates the uh, the production of of the of the mushrooms or the apothecia, and the uh, wetness of the canopy during that infection phase of of the of the disease. So, Clint, can we oh, assume that all parts of the prairies are at risk? Or, like, if if the moisture is there, yeah, are the sclerotinia there, or are there are there some areas where, no matter how much moisture you get, you're probably not going to get sclerotinia stem rot. So, like this this particular pathogen, it, it has a lot of hosts. Basically, anything that's not a grass potentially could be infected by this particular pathogen. So, what that means is that um, the opportunity for that the the pathogen to be present in the soil is high. Um, uh, dicot weeds, so broadleaf weeds, uh, potentially could be increasing this disease. Um, even thistle, like Canada thistle, you wouldn't think that anything would like that, but uh, it's it can actually be a great host for for this particular disease and and increase it. So that what that means is that there's always the potential for the pathogen to be present in the soil. That those sclerotia, they can remain in the soil for long periods of time, just waiting for the the right. Uh, environmental conditions to to initiate their germination into apothecia and it reminds me of of back early in my career um being in northwest saskatchewan in 2004 and uh a lot of the the prairies had just come out of a pretty severe drought in 2002 2003 and in fact like a lot of locals had said that you know it's it's been 10 years of drought and suddenly 2004 it was it was a really good beginning of the season lots of moisture the crop was looking fantastic and uh, i remember uh, agronomists and farmers asking me in the region saying uh what do you think are, 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 is it going to be possible that we can have sclerotinia and i said well you haven't seen sclerotinia in this area in 10 years it's the likelihood of it is uh, is low <laughs> and i was totally wrong uh, it was it was the worst sclerotinia that had been seen in the region in probably 25 years and uh it, that sclerosis was just there. It was waiting for for that that opportunity in which to uh, to produce the disease. So, um, I would I would say that there's always the potential for the disease, um, regardless of what one's rotation is or where, what area of the prairies that you are. Clinton, Chris, I've been doing Canola Watch since 2010, and we started off talking about this, I think it was the Swedish checklist, and Canada was adopting that. Now we're working on a Canadian update to the checklist. But really, in all of that time, our approach to sclerotinia stem rot management has been more or less the same, small little incremental improvements. This podcast is about the moonshots, moon big, big advancements in how we approach sclerotinia management. So, Chris, how do we take what we've been doing for, for all of these years and really give it a boost? Yeah, Jay, I really like the idea of the moonshots thing because, you know, decades ago we did get to the moon, landed on there, and that was a big achievement. I think we got to definitely return to that kind of mindset of these big goals that really kind of disrupt our industry in terms of ways of managing things such as sclerotinia. So when we think about 
sclerotinia management right now, it's foliar fungicides. It's the timing of that during flowering period, and that's essentially the biggest tool in our toolbox. But I would say what we're hopefully approaching towards now is looking more on the genetic side of things. And there is many different projects, research that's underway that can tackle this uh, and integrate it into our modern canola hybrids to actually defend itself against sclerotinia. The challenges with this is that it is such an aggressive pathogen and it infects so quickly that uh, that defense has to be very robust to prevent significant yield losses. So um, that's probably why we haven't seen a lot of um, breeding and activities actually be on the market just yet, but we're slowly getting there. And you know, with technology such as RNA interference or CRISPR, um, these potential ideas may actually become reality soon. Clint, can you can you give us a brief synopsis of of where we are today, and what may what we so where we are today, and what do we need to get to full resistance, like we may have with with blackleg, maybe full resistance is the wrong word, but significant resistance. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like there, there are some uh, canola cultivars that are present in the market that have uh, some level of sclerotinia resistance or sclerotinia tolerance, and and they actually work really quite well. Um, but admittedly, uh, even by the uh, the life science companies that are selling these uh, these products. It, it's not at the, the same level as, as what a, a fungus, the level of control that a fungicide would provide. But I think we're getting closer to that, um, that the, the products that come out each year are, are a little bit better and, and getting us closer to, to a fungicide level. Um, but we're, we're, we're not there yet. And, and, and sclerotinia, like it, it's a tough one because as Chris said, it, the, the pathogen itself is, is just so aggressive. Like it's, it's a different kind of disease from uh, a lot of the other diseases that we deal with. Like a, a lot of the diseases are what we call our biotrophs. Like they they infect uh, tissue and and then they uh, actively grow within the tissue without causing too much disruption for for a lot of their life cycle. But sclerotinia is the opposite. Like what it does, it just creates this mass cell death all around it, and uh, it consumes the the remnants of of those plant cells as it goes. So it's it, it's what's called as a necrotroph, so it makes it really, really tough to control. But the the good news is that there are a number of of new um, resistance genes that are, that are coming to market in in the next few years that actually look really quite good. That that it might might be a, a significant improvement over what we've got currently on the market. But it it's still going to be a, a few years away, I think, before we'll say that you know this resistance is probably equivalent to to a fungicide level of control, but um, I'd still say that these are, are what what's in the pipeline are, are not the, the the moonshots that that we are that we're looking for. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we actually had a product that was immune to sclerotinia in, in the same way that uh, that a cereal crop is that uh, the, the it just does not act as a host anymore. That uh, it's the plant's biology is different enough that the the fungus just has no opportunity to to even start the infection process. That would be uh, pretty cool. Chris, I'm coming back to you to check in on something you said earlier, the the RNAi. What is that? RNAi stands for RNA interference. So let's go into a really quick molecular biology course and think about uh, 
the idea that DNA turns into RNA, and then that RNA then translates and creates proteins. And so most fungicides we see today are target proteins or other or enzymes. RNA interference actually disrupts the RNA stage so that those proteins or enzymes that are critical to life in that organism we're targeting don't actually exist or are reduced to amounts where it just can't grow or infect as readily. So in the past couple of decades, we've seen RNA interference really go from essentially um, studies inside a lab towards actually developing products for agricultural purposes or even in the medical field where we can design the specific sequences that actually target the RNA molecules in the host organism. And these can be so specific that we can target a single uh, organism or a single species uh, without any detriment to the environment or any other um, organisms there. So it's a really powerful way of controlling things, but because we're targeting a step backwards rather than the proteins or enzymes, it does take a little bit slower to cause any uh, effect. Um, RNA interference we've seen already on the market in the U.S. controlling some insects such as the corn rootworm. And um, in that way, we actually see it uh, being applied as a transgenic method. So we don't actually have to spray anything onto it. It's just like, uh, say, like a BT um, resistance gene in that sense. The other flip side is that we can also spray these sequences just like a foliar application, just like traditional fungicides and provide that other uh, method of protection as well. So RNAi has a very um, diverse way that it can be applied in agriculture right now. And uh, probably, while this is probably one of those kinds of moonshots, uh, hopefully we'll see this something realized, you know, in the next decade or so. You know, it's not like we're talking about something that is that is not has not even left the lab stage. It, it's out there, just not in the world of sclerotinia stem rot right now. The one that's currently on the market right now is a transgenic event, not a spray. But there are ones that are looking at field tests. Um, a company called Greenlight Biosciences has been looking at things like this for, say, varroa mites against bees. Um, but there has been actually some work on sclerotinia regarding RNAi, and that was part of a research project by Dr. Mark Belmonte and Dr. Steve Wired, where they took, took a look at developing these targets, these sequences against sclerotinia for canola in our last uh, canola agroscience cluster. And they just got to the field trial stage for that, but developed some really promising candidates that showed efficacy inside greenhouse and lab settings. Just on the, the transgenic, maybe Clint, I'll go to you with this. I mean, we've got a history of of herbicide tolerance um, as a as a transgenic trait in canola. Is the world ready to bring another transgenic trait in canola to market? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. It, um, bringing transgenic traits, uh, like so, th these are usually new traits that that don't exist within that that species or that crop. So it, it could be a, a gene from uh, from a different species um, to to get them through regulatory approval is is difficult, not not only here in Canada, but uh, anytime because 90 percent of our, our canola crop is exported, 
we, we need to have regulatory approval in, in all of our markets, um, foreign markets, wherever our canola is is, uh, is destined. We need to have a, approvals for for that new trait to uh, to be to be imported and and then consumed within that that country. So that that takes time and that takes a, a lot of money and and resources in which to to navigate all of those regulatory uh, procedures in in every country. Um, so that trait needs to have a lot of value in which to do that. And and because sclerotinia is is usually really well controlled with with fungicides, um, it it was determined that. Um, that building a trait like this and then trying to get uh, it all through the the regulatory uh, hurdles uh, wasn't the, the return on that investment wasn't necessary and so that's that's where we're at uh, at this point in time that if we are going to bring a, a new trait to market like it, it has to provide a, a significantly greater amount of value than than what that that regulatory cost is 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 going to inflict upon the the industry in which to do that Chris, do you see a, a path forward for a sclerotinia sp RNAi spray, or, yeah. or maybe a, or, or possibly a gene-edited CRISPR-type trait that isn't a transgenic trait? Yeah, so a spray option definitely removes a lot of those regulatory hurdles that Clint has described, and the applicability of that in our current agricultural systems is also very attractive. You know, these formulations can be made so that they can be compatible with other um, current uh, sprayer um, technologies, or they could probably be tank mixed with our fungicides. So, you know, you have some layering of uh, protection. Um, in terms of, like, say, a CRISPR or a gene edited option, that also holds some promise, too. And I think that's the recent signals by um, the government of Canada on this. Is, is a good indicator that this could be a potential pathway for new improvements as to uh, genetic resistance. And I'm, and I'm kind of th um, thinking back to a paper that I read a few months ago where it was uh, as simple as knocking out a gene that caused the petals to drop. So those petals would stick around on the end of that canola plant as that uh, pod forms. And if you don't have the petals to drop, the sclerotinia can infect through the stem and the uh, leaves. So there, there's many different strategies that you can uh, take an approach to this, whether it's gene edited or RNAi foliar sprays and such. And I think all of them have their kind of niche in the market because um, there is a desire for these. Are there any other moonshots that you had in mind, Chris or Clint? Anything we didn't talk about? What I would really like to see in the um, canola industry here is a more unified sense of all these different measurements that we have and different tools to assess sclerotinia infection. So currently, you know, there's work being done to detect the spores in the air of sclerotinia. We have um, all these weather forecasting services, you know, remote sensing, whether it's by drones or satellites. I think all these tools are great, but they shouldn't have to exist um, separately. You know, all this work doesn't occur just in a vacuum. I think if there's an opportunity to really um, let farmers know, let growers know that um, what kind of risk they have based on all of this information that is being fed into this, these technologies, I think that's where we have 
a really good chance at managing one of our top yield robbers here in Canada. Basically using the technology that's there or close to create a, like a signal system or a risk-based map even that farmers can, can check each morning to know the scenario in their area. Is that what you're thinking, Chris? Exactly. Yeah, we have all the tools. We have a lot of this data. Now it's the question of how do we put all of this together in what way and making sure that it's validated across all these different growing regions across the prairies. Yeah. Clint, what else do you got for us? Well, uh, I, I, I don't have anything significantly different other than just to uh, reiterate that uh, yeah, Chris is, is on the right idea. Like we, we do have a, a lot of tools. It's just the, the integration of, of all of those tools into a, uh, a much more robust and, and comprehensive uh, suite for, for farmers to use that that's easy. Um, that's, that's really where we need to get to. And, and maybe that's not quite so much a, a moonshot because uh, we, we have those those tools there. It's just building the will within the industry in which we can see some maybe some more collaboration between those the, the, the different uh, risk providers in that. But if we can measure risk effectively with with sclerotinia, then then the battle is is mostly won on on this uh, particular disease. Because uh, as I said, fungicides do a fantastic job at, at controlling it, but it's just really tough to make that decision as to whether one should spray or not spray whether one should incur that cost or not. Let's close with a thought on 2023. So we don't have these moonshots yet. What does a farmer to do as the crop is coming into flower this year? Really, it's it, it keep your eyes to the sky and uh, boots on the ground, I think, is one of your best ways to manage sclerotinia. Um, take a look, walk through your fields to check out that humidity in the canopy. You know, we have our checklist through um, the Canola Council of Canada and there are other third party providers of different risk assessments you can use. All of them are pretty good right now and it can give you a good indication of where the, you should spray or not. But uh, if you don't go out and check your fields, um, you're, you're really kind of going in blind. And, you know, fungicide applications prophylactically can work, but when you're looking at the ROI, um, it can be a pretty straightforward decision. If you're, say your ground is dry or you haven't had much rain, then you could, you could likely forego that application. Clint, what's your thought on the return on investment? You've been farming and and doing agronomy at the same time for a lot of years is your sense that the roi is probably there in more instances than crops that are actually sprayed like there's there's probably more yeah. crops that could benefit from a spray than are actually sprayed unless we're faced with a situation like 2021 um i i would say yes to that um that in many, I think growers would be surprised at at that return on investment with a with a fungicide application. So, like if we consider that um, sclerotinia takes a, away about half, like um, so use use that one half number. So, say you have ten percent of your plants are are infected with with the disease. Roughly, that that works into a five percent yield reduction. So it doesn't take very much many infected plants to actually reduce your your yield. 
So if, if your yields target and, and the, the crop looks like you have a, a 50 bushel yield and 10% of those plants are infected, so that means a 5% yield reduction in uh, <clears throat> in uh, on 50 bushels. So what's that work out to be about two and a half bushels? Two and a half bushels at, well, we're not at $20 anymore, but to say we're at $15, like it's, that does, that 10% infection is greater loss than, than, a, than a fungicide spray very easily. So you don't need very many plants that need to be infected for, for a fungicide to actually uh, pay off for you. So I would, like Chris said, really encourage producers and agronomists uh, at flowering time to pay close attention to what you think is the yield potential of the crop and what are the, the risk factors, how wet it has been, what is the, the weather forecast to, um, to make that uh, spray, spray decision. Many times I, I get asked by farmers, so what can I do from a from a, an agronomy point of view or from a cultural point of view to to manage this disease? What if I go with wider row spacings or what if I go with um, uh, a lower seeding rate? Is that going to change the micro environment in the in the crop canopy? Is that going to reduce my risk for the disease? And I, I would say that the only things that will reduce your risk for disease from a from a crop management point of view are, are the same things that are going to reduce your yield. If you have a low yielding crop, then the risk for the disease is low. This disease loves the same conditions that that farmers love, something that's going to produce high yield. So if you think you have a, the conditions for a high yielding crop, unfortunately, that's the same conditions for for the development of, of the disease. Fortunately or unfortunately, I guess if you've got a high yielding crop, then it's worth yep. protecting it. Hey, Clint, That's before right. we close, I just want to go back to 2021. I know it's only two years ago, but can you remind us why that year was different? Well, 2021 was has been described as as the worst drought that the Canadian prairies have have had in 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 our agricultural history here. It was, so certainly over the last hundred years. So under those conditions, it was it was a, unfortunately it was a pretty safe bet to uh, advise producers then not to spray for sclerotinia because uh, the return on investment in that year was was not worth it. But in in almost every other year, there certainly are areas on the prairies that have adequate levels of moisture, have good yield potential that that requires uh, protecting from a fungicide. Last word to you, Chris. Anything you want to add? Hopefully we have good soil moisture conditions that we're going to get a good crop, but that also means we have to have higher scrutiny for that sclerotinic risk. That's that, guys. Thank you. Chris Matcher is a Canola Council of Canada agronomy specialist and team lead on the sclerotinia stem rot file. He has a master's degree from the University of Manitoba, and Professor Steve Wired was his advisor. Clint Yerke, Agronomy Director at the Canola Council of Canada, also has his master's degree from the University of Manitoba. His thesis was on sclerotinia stem rot. For lots more on sclerotinia stem rot risk assessment and management, look for the chapter in the Diseases section at canolaencyclopedia.ca. Also, read Factors in the Sclerotinia Spray Decision at canolawatch.org fundamentals. Canola Watch is an agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada with support from the three prairies-based canola grower organizations, 
Sass Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. At the core of Canola Watch is a timely agronomy email with regular updates throughout the growing season on sclerotinia stem rot, insects, weather, fertilizer management, and other topics. If you are not already subscribed, please sign up at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thank you for listening.